I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Deep Impact and Armageddon. Are we on? Are we on? We're on, Mr. President. A few minutes ago, the United States ambassadors to every country in the world told the leaders of those nations what I'm about to tell you. Comments are still headed for Earth. Now we've been planning for the worst, so I hope you'll bear with me and listen to what I have to say. To ensure the continuation of our way of life, we've been preparing a network of immense caves, and we can put a million people in them underground for two years. On August 10th, we're going to hold a national lottery. A computer will randomly select 800,000 Americans to join the 200,000 scientists, teachers, soldiers, and artists who have already been chosen. In addition, the United States and Russia have been building the largest spaceship ever constructed to stop the comets. On this episode, we shall be dueling the two 1998 Comet Collision blockbusters, Mimi Leder's Deep Impact and Michael Bay's Armageddon. Let's start with the one that was released first. Okay, 1998's Deep Impact, or as we called it at the time, the porn parody Deep In Pants. This was the uh, the first of two asteroid-based films from 1998, the summer of uh, 98, when... Uh, I, I don't know which... Because like, we know that in Hollywood, as soon as something gets... Like, uh, scripts get passed around, and they get told, no, we're not going to do this script, and like, they get forgotten about. And then they one studio will find out that another studio is doing something similar to a script they saw four months ago. And then they immediately get on their phone to Greta, and they say, Greta, Fish get... Fish it off the slush pile. Pull it out of the slush pile. It's in the trash. Dust that bitch off. And we will make this meteorite movie, but we're going to make it faster and more boring than the one that's coming from Ruckheimer in the next few months. That's, that was the remit, I, I believe. I don't know how else you can get a Dante's Peak in a Volcano. I don't know how else you can get... An Ants and a Bug's Life? An Ants and a Bug's Life. A prestige and an illusionist, uh... you know? Now, the main reason we watch this is because uh, we're you're just quivering with existential crisis right now, and uh, our brains are in panic mode, and so we figured we'd go back to the 90s when everyone was a lot more naive mm-hmm. and, and watch... say, how did they handle the apocalypse then? Watch their version of the end of the world, or mm-hmm. one of their versions of the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, an Independence Day and a Mars Attacks. That feels like an instance where Warner Brothers greenlit for release in December something that would almost be a parody of the big blockbuster that came the summer before, Sight Unseen, from their rivals 20th Century Fox. Interesting to note that that means Disney now has the Independence Day franchise. Huh. But in terms of Deep Impact and Armageddon, they're both trying to tug on your emotions. But I feel like... Maybe Armageddon uses more dirty tricks more effectively, but Deep Impact is so straight-faced that it comes off as patronising. It's almost so earnest about itself that it inspires derision rather than... You know how um, 
Steve Rogers' performance, uh, Chris Evans' performance as Captain America is extremely earnest and uh, real. It's not that because it doesn't have that edge that Evans always played it with. There, there is no edge to this thing. It's as edgy as a Satsuma. The sheer fucking audacity. The audacity. That this has in moments was insufficient to carry it to the extent that they wanted it to. I think Armageddon is much more effective because it doesn't reach as hard. Armageddon takes a globally affecting event and kind of concedes straight out the gate, we can't possibly give you everybody's perspective on this situation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler. Mm. Make and it small stakes, yeah. Exactly. It, it's, not, it's not so much that it's a small stakes film. The huge stakes are there. But because what we are focused on is this father-daughter drama, effectively, it allows us to... Uh, to focus. It allows us to actually deal with stuff at a level that as individual human beings we can absorb. The issue with Deep Impact in in direct contrast to that is it tries to, to say by using in the first 20 minutes or so Phrases like extinction level events. Oh, and, it's an extent. and there's a, a, a uh, picture and of, pages about of a dinosaur gang. Eh? What's that? So immediately it's trying to convey this sense of scale and planet wide crisis, which it then leaves the audience to absorb on their own. Not only do we never really hear anything to suggest. What other countries are doing to uh, to organise for the for this uh, the impact of this asteroid? Apart from an offhand comment about oh, other countries will be working to preserve their way of life as they see fit. Where where is this happening, Morgan Freeman? Budget didn't cover it. Come on, just indicate to me in some way that what is actually not happening around the world, which in the back of my head is exactly what was happening around the world, is, right, we've looked at the data, we've worked out this is going to fuck America in the bin. Right, (laughs) we tell them, yeah, that it's going to kill us too and we're going to sort ourselves out and they can sort themselves out and then we'll just sit back and wait and let it happen. This is the most American global disaster I've ever seen. It's just... There's there's the there's the brief conversation about well the the Russians had to get involved because although we built the rocket they had to make it go or something like mm. they, they they oh yeah the concessions the... they make is some of the astronauts aren't from yeah. America there's but, one Russian but here's the thing first off first off the size of the asteroid which they make the it's the size of Texas sir no 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 it's the size of New York. <clears throat> Specifically Manhattan, the it's, Manhattan downtown area. Yeah. <laughs> they give a, they give precise dimensions as to how you could pace it out. But it's it's I think they say it's it's about seven miles long. Mm-hmm. Now that is roughly the size of the asteroid that that is believed to have wiped out the dinosaurs, according to futurist.com. Because I looked this up after the film had finished. I thought I need some information on this. Records from could, that time were spotty at best. Could a seven mile long asteroid actually wipe out all life on Earth given 
given that the Earth is a sphere and it's only going to hit in one place. Yeah. Yes, it will have yeah. the, this wide-ranging effect of the dust. It's the dust that gets flown up. I get that. I understand yeah. that completely. Blocks out the sun. However, <laughs> how big would an asteroid actually have to be that it would affect the whole of the globe and wipe out all life on Earth, which I might add is a considerably more and b considerably more widespread than when the dinosaurs were around when i said all life on earth i meant all american life the the when the dinosaurs were wiped out they were kind of concentrated in not a tiny area but an area that okay could be completely blotted out <laughs> they were all around steve the tyrannosaurus rex's that's house that's your first mistake you said that they didn't have tinned food though as well <laughs> well no 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 <laughs> Oh, well, come, that's the dinosaurs. They don't that. prepare, do they? <laughs> I'll come to that in a minute. But yeah, according to Futurist.com, about eight miles long was the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. To wipe out all of the life on Earth now, you would need an asteroid 60 miles long. Yeah. And if an asteroid 60 miles long turns up, I don't think they're going to be dicking around with Bruce Willis and a nuke. I think they're just going to be like, we're done. May as well just dig just a grave. Enjoy your last six weeks, folks. Okay, That's let's the end let's not tempt fate, shall we? There's several months of 2020 <laughs> left. But yes, the the point about the tinned food was that obviously the main thing that's going to wipe everybody out, they say, is that the dust cloud that this asteroid is going to throw up will blot out the sun. <sighs> At which point it will take four weeks for all the plant life on Earth to die. And then after that, it will take a few months for all the animal life on Earth to die. By which point you're then just waiting for humans to kind of topple in the domino effect. But, but, the dinosaurs would have died out if they weren't cooked immediately by the heat from the asteroid, which was a high possibility. Once the plants all died, guess what dinosaurs didn't do? store food. So yes, if it wasn't growing or immediately available, they were done for. Guess what humans do? Store food. We make tin openers. We have things that we can put underground. But what if the dinosaurs ploughed the field with their faces? We're going to move on from there No good dinosaurs? No. Okay, left behind. Let's just ignore all of that. But my point being, and this was the thing that kept coming up for me time and time again, my biggest beef with this film was the administrative plan that they have to sort out who goes into these caves in Missouri. Right. Okay. Right. So there's these big caves that they've dug in Missouri. Right. (laughs) You've got other caves than this limestone thing you've been digging out in Missouri. They had two years warning. This thing gets spotted two years ago in 1996. You are not seriously telling me that you could only make accommodation to preserve one million Americans. And I appreciate that a big part of the point here is going to be storing food and supplies and enough (laughs) to keep people... Right. They they say they're sending art to these caverns. And it's like, you could have saved more people, but you had to send the fucking lobster telephone. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make that picture. I'm a Dali fan. What can I say? It's a sculpture. The lobster telephone. Oh, yes, it is. Sorry. Hydroponics. Yeah. Hydroponics. They could, they could, like, you could live in caves with well, some kind of, of food system set up that works in the dark. What struck me, us both, about this was that President Morgan Freeman says, you know, the, lo- the law enforcement will continue. There is to be no looting. There is to be no hoarding. And I'm like, 
how are we going to enforce this? You've just told most Americans they're probably going to die. He says he's freezing wages. Freezing wages. And he's freezing uh, prices. Yeah. And the a bottle of water will cost, cost you the, you the same, same tomorrow, tomorrow as it, it did, did yesterday. Today. Why aren't you giving away water free, President Morgan Freeman? Well, got to make a living. <laughs> the economy must continue. There's a reason we watched this specifically, just that the madness of... Of the 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 audacity, as you said, the audacity of believing you've got a finger on the pulse with this script. The f- like the first twenty three minutes of this film are trying to find out the mystery of what is Le, and it's like, dude, people paid to see a fucking meteorite movie. They know what Le is. Quit fucking around, and it just plays out like this this journalist thriller, and it's like you know we think it's that this senator um, James Cromwell who walks straight out of the picture is having an affair with uh, a woman named Ellie, but it turns out to be extinction level event. He's having an affair with an extinction level event, and fucking and. Chile only goes to meet with what turns out to be Morgan Freeman, and this is like this is directed by Mimi Leder. I've never liked the direction of, um, but. I, I was astonished at how unfocused it is. Like that, you, you get shots of people sort of talking to each other and mumbling things from a, a script, which is not very interesting. And you're like, are these actual scenes? Are we watching deleted scenes that got left in? And like when Tilioni talks to Morgan Freeman, she sort of looks below, like she's in a kitchen and she looks below the shelves and sees some condensed milk, a, a small amount of condensed milk in a palette. And I'm like... Why are we bothering to film this? All of the immediacy and drama of finding out about a fucking extinction-level event and we're staring at condensed milk. And I believe that that's actually kind of a perfect visual metaphor for Deep Impact. It's a tin of condensed milk, something that nobody uses anymore. We're going to get all kinds of letters. Hey, buddy, I like condensed milk. Apparently you can make good fudge with it, so they tell me. But, like, if you've got cream, use cream. But, yeah, now that he's kind of, you know, shunted into a corner, uh, Morgan Freeman tells the world about it, and the world seems to be mostly kind of, I guess we'll just wait for it, for death then. Just wait for extinction. This is, like, this there's, is there's the some, thing. There's some news reports saying there was a few outbreaks of violence. How? <laughs> but, but generally speaking, the only outbreak of but violence didn't that, cover they, it. that they specify is somebody who got beaten up by a mob One because person. he was overcharging them for tractor rentals. <laughs> what are you going to do with the extra money? <sighs> I just... I, the, the, the sheer notion... That they're, it's such a gentle we world pick? we're seeing. It's such a sweet-natured, lifetime movie kind of... It's all like there's actually quite a lot of biblical stuff in here. There seems mm. to be uh, like a, a spiritual. Well, we believe in God, and God, we hope will save us. And I'm going to give a, a prayer to the nation, and 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 Morgan Freeman just gives a, like a, a sweet, you know, God look over you and protect you. And at the end, he's like, you know, th- there was big floods, but then the waters receded, and then sort of stares into the camera. Do you get me? The waters receded. Anyone? Mount Sinai. No one? Oh, okay. I mean, it's still a better film than 2012. I fucking hate 2012. Mm. Well, that's just playing on your cortisol at the end of the day. That's just, that's just like, can we trigger everybody's stress reflex at once? Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I was just, I, I remained continually baffled about this notion of we're going to do a lottery to pick 800,000 Americans. So they're doing a lottery to pick, they, they use people's social security numbers to uh, work out who gets to go down there. So by that argument, every single one of these million Americans that are going to be put in these caves are adults. Mm-hmm. What about their kids? What about all the ones who say, I'm not going down there without my kids? Yeah. What about all the kids who are picked because they, they're old enough just to have a social... Yeah? You've got to, have, you've got to well, be like 18 to get social security. I, I, I don't know exactly how old you have to be if it's, if it's related to work. I'm assuming it's like a national insurance number, hmm. which in this country you are not issued with until you are 16. Also, if they, they, like, how are they doing this mathematical process? Like, we picked this one person at random. They've got six kids and a wife. That means seven people are going into this. Yeah. We if, pick if this other person. If they get to bring their families with them... Yeah. Then that skews your numbers completely. Also, the the point of this selection of people is to preserve America's way of life, right? Mm. So surely you'd have X number of people from this state, X number of people from that state. You'd have to organise it so that there was a reasonable balance of people from different areas of people, and also with a certain specific sets. percentage depending on number of people within that region. And if your intention is to repopulate America afterwards, you're going to have to have something... And and God forbid, I don't think this is something that should be done, but if that's your intention, some kind of, are you actually capable of bearing children? Oh, you're an old man with a bum ticker. Well, they well, do... No, no, no. They do say nobody over the age of 50. Okay. So, from an age perspective... Oh, you're perspective, a 49-year-old man with a bum ticker. From an age perspective... And a drug habit. That's fine. But... There'd be exclusions because people are shit and can't come up with a better way to organise this. Like, I know it's terrible, but there would be people saying no one gay is allowed in here because they can't repopulate the earth like gay people are are unable to. And there would be all kinds of fucking sick shit going on regarding people saying you're excluded. But this is what I mean. It's, It's everything, everything about this film is whoever wrote the script wrote a line of they'd come up with an idea in five minutes of how this thing would be resolved and whoever then filmed it went, yep, this it's fine. No uh, investigation as to how people would respond to mm. this. They'd just be given this. We're going to pick eight hundred thousand people based on their social security numbers, and everybody would go, "Okay." And Morgan Freeman says it's going to take two days to get eight hundred thousand people all the way over there and on, on, on underground. Uh, so no one else is allowed to use the roads. Okay, how are you going to enforce this one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and guess what? Buses, Everybody goes out on the roads. Buses will come round and pick everyone up. There's Great. a scene! This, this it's is a fun much, bus. much later. There's a scene where there's massive traffic jams coming out of, I'm not sure which city it is, but huge traffic jams. Elijah Wood is nipping around it on his little moped trying to find his girlfriend. No, no sorry, one else is using a trail bike. Trying to find his bike. wife. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, this child married another child. So that, he really could get, so that he could get her to come in with him. Does he realise that means somebody else has to get dropped off the list? They don't magically invent a place oh, for sorry. Lily Sobieski. Did we just say 800,000? We meant 800,001 for yes. you, Biederman. You saw the, the, the meteorite you get at the beginning. Bring, on a, and, and you are rewarded with pussy. Well done. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is basically it, isn't it? They, they, they lampshade it when his mate tells him at the school assembly, like, you are going to get so much sex. Dude, dude this pimple-faced youth stands up in front of like a, 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 an assembly of children and... 
They, everyone in America, everyone in the world has been told the world is ending. Yeah. And it's Everyone's like, going to die. Because he saw the, uh, the meteorite first, he's famous. And this guy's like, dude, you're going to get so much sex right now. And he's like, oh. And the whole audience laughs. And it's like, do you know what? No one's going to be here to sing the praises of this kid. Like, ultimately, it's like, thank you very much, early warning system. We are all going to be going and doing whatever we're doing as a result of this. Whether that be, you know, cracking each other's heads open and feasting on the goo inside. Whether that be getting into our doomsday bunkers. Whether that be sailing to Australia. Whether that be whatever. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the scene that I was going to mention was in amidst all of this traffic jam... Tealione decides she's got to get to her dad. She's given up her place in the bunker. Oh, right, so Sobieski can get in. Uh, well, yeah, there you go. She can have Tealione's place. That works. Luckily, it's very well organised, so everyone knows this. Absolutely. So, um, so she's on her way to go to her dad. And yet, traffic jam. So guess what she does? She drives on the hard shoulder. Ah, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Everybody would be doing that, especially once they see her doing that. Do you know what this film now, is? Now, Bar, we've got to obey this... the traffic rules, even though it is Armageddon. Sorry, apocalypse. This film is basically everybody in America sitting down calmly... To sing Kumbaya. ...wearing a mask. Guess what's not happening in America? Everyone's sitting down calmly and wearing a mask. Because... Life. It's that because episode of The people... Simpsons where they all sing uh, What Will Be Will Be in Ned Flanders' bomb shelter. Yes. Bart's Thank Comet, you. which yes. came out before this film. That is exactly what it is. It just... Okay, sera, I'm, I'm not saying that when you make disaster movies, you have to make them realistic. My I'm God, don't. Whatever you do, do not all. show it would be accurate people. It would depress everyone and we'd all just want to die. Absolutely. But there was only one scene in this whole film that I actually felt like I connected with on an emotional level in a sense of, yeah, I could actually see Was that, that Mary McCormack saying goodbye to her child? Uh, no, actually. Right. Okay, there we go. We'll have two. Because that, that did feel that quite authentic and sincere. And yes, it did make me The care. astronauts have been up in space for four months still, yes, by the they way. Have. They fucked up on the destroying of the asteroid. Yep. They split it in two. So there's a small one that's going to destroy the world a bit. Mm. And then there's a big one that's going to destroy the world a, a lot <laughs> a few minutes afterwards. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah. The... But they're still up there just hanging around in space. Absolutely. But they, they do have this very emotional scene where all the astronauts get to say goodbye to their families, uh, except Robert Duvall's kids who they couldn't get hold of. And um, <laughs> and there's a, a, a one guy whose child was born while after he left. And this kid is now four months old and he's like waving at daddy on the monitor. And he reaches out and puts his hand on the screen and says, Be good. Is that why you pulled ET off the shelf? That's why I pulled ET off the shelf, so that I would remember nice. the how fucking dare you <laughs> that popped mm. in my head when that happened. Right. But yeah, the only the only bit that I actually thought, yeah, I could see that. And the reason that I thought that is because I thought they should have done that like half an hour previously. Mm. And it's the bit when Elijah Wood finds Lily Sibieski and her parents are like, you, no arguments, young lady. You go with him now. Here's your baby sister. Take her. Go. Get yourselves to safety. Just ignore us. You go. 
like there's a the uh, much much earlier they come to pick up Elijah Wood and he's going to take her with him because she is now his wife she gets upset because her parents were supposed she thought were going to be allowed to come with her but aren't those are the rules and then she refuses to go and her parents are just like Oh, well, yeah. uh, we're obviously not on the list. I mean, they're upset about it, obviously. But I said I said to you at the time, if I was her dad, I'm not not letting her get on that bus. I am picking her up bodily and putting her on that bus and giving her baby sister to her. She has an opportunity to live here. I am making sure she takes it. The much more dramatic film Titanic came out just a few months before this and is a more accurate depiction of actually kind of what would happen. Mm. In fact, it's really kind of... It's got its finger on the pulse regarding what the 1% would do. I mean, obviously, it's pumped up for dramatic effect. We accept that. And it, it's... it's this is, this is what film is. It delivers emotional beats and mm. and kind of they're, they're bottled they're concentrated but this is not bottled and concentrated this is like this condensed is like, milk toast yes it's a world without ugliness it's an end of the world without ugliness there's nothing where you're like oh god this is so depressing it's all just like oh i'm thinking about you know my life it feels like if this film was clever and emotionally resonant and actually felt like it was human it would warrant that level of introspection but on a deeper level mm. like if this was an indie film which where it, like you could do this film on an indie budget in fact now that i think about it they did in fact do this film on an indie budget it's called last night it's from 1998 had sarah polly in it sandra O. Oh. David Cronenberg, and it's basically just zero budget. These are people preparing for the absolute end. It was very frank and introspective, bittersweet, and yeah, kind of depressing. Not really a crowd pleaser. It made $591,000. Now, you could get those sensibilities into a blockbuster, but you couldn't in 1998. What they've effectively done here is wrap a big-budget disaster movie around a lifetime movie. Kind of a non-challenging family drama, but with multiple unconnected families. But people weren't coming to see that, they were coming to see the effects. You know, budget and the graphics spent on making a giant meteorite in space and making a giant tidal wave that claims New York City because we must have a bit of a disaster. Uh, like, that that's what this would be. But if it would have to be written by someone with much more of a feel for how people really act. And, and how low people get when they get depressed. And what sometimes what terrible things people do. Mm. It just it, it feels dreadfully inauthentic and to a human are, experience. There are ranges of ways that people act as well. Everyone isn't going to respond the same way. It's like, it feels like they just got a load of cardboard cutouts mm. because they couldn't get real people. Yeah. It also feels like the kind of, if the world was actually about to end in the 90s, they would have put this on TV to keep people calm by going, see, they're noble, they're just waiting for death. Calm as Hindu cows. Now, if this comet continues on its path around the sun and keeps its present course, sometime on August 16th, roughly a year from now, there's a chance that we might have impact. The exact date of my 18th birthday. Bummer. Yes, Armageddon knows. A piece of rock just six miles wide. Whoa, hold on, Chuck. We're in danger of being excited. Back to Morgan in the studio. Our society will continue as normal. Work will go on 
you will pay your bills. There will be no hoarding. There will be no sudden profiteering. I'm freezing all wages, all prices. T. Leone goes back to uh, reconcile with her estranged father, and they both stand on the beach, awaiting the end, directly in the path of the largest tidal wave in the world. Like, literally, just, I love you, Dad. And then they both turn around and go, Oh! So the small meteorite hits, creates a massive tidal wave. And then the big meteorite gets blown up by the astronauts who go back for a second go and blow themselves up with the uh, meteorite. Uh, and I was like, they could have done that at any time. Uh, but apparently they had to get within range of the Earth so they could get the codes to blow these nuclear warheads directly with them there. I think that's what it was, yeah. So, they, yeah. They definitely had, they had to get close to Houston to get some kind of information. My question being, what was their plan B? They didn't seem to have a plan B. They went for the plan A, which, by the way, was the exact plan A that Harry went, now that's bullshit. You try blowing up the uh, nuclear warheads close to the surface, it's not going to really no, no, no. crack they, that thing in Armageddon. Yeah, they had a plan B. Yeah. Plan B was we launch a shed load of Titan missiles yeah. from the surface of the Earth. Yeah. Um, but we can't do that until they get within hours of hitting yeah. because we haven't got the range. Yeah. And they launched them and they missed. Right. Or, so they, or they had no effect. They didn't. I don't remember any missiles being launched. It must they, just have been really They mentioned it. It was like right. a throwaway line. So that was their plan B. They, you don't think they'd maybe have a plan C as well? For, I mean, considering that everything's riding on this. What the fuck else are you going to be doing with your time than creating plans C through Z? Yeah. Like, here's how we do it. Every governor... Do all of them. Every governor, you're in charge of sheltering the people in your state. Find caves, find underground stuff, build bunkers. Do all of them except the ones that would cancel out other ones. Yeah. You know? It's it's crazy. And th- th- it's... And it's done this way because the film knows ah, the astronauts are going to blow up in the end. We don't even need a plan C. So the big explosion is prevented and the complete extinction level event is prevented. And it's, it's nice. It's a kind of biblical Noah's Ark way of ending and the waters are receding. But we still get a, a fireworks show of the, uh, the small meteorite lands and creates a massive tidal wave, takes out New York. Mimi Leda, the year before this, in 1997, directed The Peacemaker, starring uh, George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. And in that film, they have to disarm a bomb, otherwise it's going to blow the whole of Washington up. And they end up disarming it, but a smaller version of the bomb's still going to blow up, which blows up the building, and they run out and the building explodes behind them. And that's Deep Impact. You know, we saved Washington, but we still had to have a bit of an explosion. And... The fact that Mimi Leda directed both of them and they were both utterly leaden and dull as shit. I genuinely believe speaks to the low bar on blockbusters in the 90s. Some of the greatest films ever made were made in the 90s. But if you compare the big event films then with the big event films now, well, I say now. Get up, come on, get down with the sickness. Your mother, get up, come on, get down with the sickness. It was an era when blockbusters were boring, long, uneventful, not character pieces, expensive at the time, but cheap by today's standards, and seemed to be mostly conceptual, like elevator pitches. A volcano blows up in LA, or a volcano blows up on Dante's Peak. What if there was a big monster? 
Like the equivalent of 1998's Godzilla is Godzilla 2 King of the Monsters now. Look at the difference between those two. I'm just glad that we've kind of moved on from this. It's Unfortunately, it took a lot of lo- a major loss of innocence for America to kind of wake up uh, and away from this kind of movie. And if you made it now, people would go, this is appallingly naive. Frankly, I remember people saying that about it back in 1998. This was not a beloved movie. And everyone laughed at how stupid Armageddon was, though they went to see it in droves. And as such, it doesn't make for a great revisit. But it is kind of a a window to the past, a window to a much simpler time when we were treated like children. And now many of us are actually acting like children. Savage, exceptionally harmful toddlers. Obviously, we did not want to make light of everyone's suffering right now. Uh, We just figured that since we sat through this really misjudged movie, we might as well convey to you folks what happened in it. There was a neat moment in the film. We were watching it with subtitles because we could barely make out what was being mumbled. And uh, when the Statue of Liberty's head just kind of flies past the screen underwater, the subtitles simply said, in parentheses, thud. And we could have saved you all half an hour because the movie reviewed itself in that single frame. I will tell you for why Deep Impact fails on almost every level. On the one level, I am entirely behind the ethos that it seems to live by the way it finishes which is a kernel of hope amidst all that despair on the one hand i like the hope survives tagline of this movie it's asking people to come in and see an almost end of the world but not quite but it's also telling you that in the end it's going to be kind of okay in some capacity however You know, Sam Wise giving his speech at the end of The Two Towers, that only has impact because things have gotten so dark, because things have gotten so depressing, because things have begun to be soaked in the bitter taste of despair. And despair is tangible and palpable in these scenarios. And what Deep Impact makes sure you don't do is ever taste that. Not really. Not in a way that feels authentic. Characters don't really despair. Vanessa Redgrave checks out early. And effectively, she's sort of a macrocosm of the end of the mist, which is actually a remarkably uplifting Stephen King story, uh, smacking you upside the head and then punching you full in the face and saying, you must not give up hope. If you give up, You doom yourself and everyone around you. That only works because the the mist got so dire, got so terrible. In this film, there is every reason for us to really feel despair. Mm -hmm. But we never really feel it because the film never really goes in full-throated. Everyone's just so weirdly accepting of the end. Mm. They're all just like, I'm just going to sit here. I found my place on the beach. There's, there's, there's this guy in Central Park sitting on the fountain reading a newspaper when the fucking tidal wave comes and punks him from behind. He's like, okay, so uh, what's on the sports pages today? Oh, no! 
Oh, and the fucking tidal wave just takes him the fuck out. There's no balance to the hope. There's no crushing despair. There's not even, like, the feeling that despair could be there. It is a facsimile, a photocopy of how real people would react in this. It's a corporate video of how the end of the world might work. Mm. It plays, what have you done today to make you feel proud at the end? And that's the music we end on. (laughs) M people, what have you done today to make me feel proud? Or the fucking lighthouse family. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's kind of what uh, Deep Impact is. It was the '90s, so it's the lighthouse family. When you're close to tears, remember someday it'll all be over. One day we're gonna get so. Bring on Armageddon. Life is short. I love you. Love is forever. Will you marry me? Gracie grew up to become a full-blown hottie. You're talking about my little girl, all right? But you never know what the future holds. Until it hits. The meteor shower. This new one you're tracking. How big? It's what we call a global killer. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. The United States government just asked us to save the world. Anybody want to say no? You think we'll get hazard pay out of this? They'll do it. They've made a few requests, though. Such as? Oscar here has got some outstanding parking tickets. Uh, Max would like you to bring back eight-track tapes. Not sure if that's going to work. Yeah, one more thing. Um, None of them want to pay taxes again. Ever. United States astronauts train for years. You have 12 days. You stick that in me, I'm going to stab you in the heart with it. On July 1st. Tell me you've never let anybody down before. I've never quit yet. How's that? Earth's darkest day. How you feeling? Good. Considering I've never been this scared in my entire life. Will be man's finest hour. I'm marrying you. You bet you are. <laughs> Bruce Willis. Billy Bob Thornton. Liv Tyler. Ben Affleck. Hey! Will Patton. 
Steve Buscemi. Whoa, this is so much fun, it's freaky. All the time in the world. We have 18 minutes to zero barrier. He's all they've got. We all gotta die, right? I'm the guy who gets to do it saving the world. Yeah! We didn't think I'm gonna quit! we're in flavor country <laughs> in comparison to the other one it's it's the right order to watch them in because if you watch Armageddon first you'd be like well maybe Deep Impact will be smarter and then you just snooze through it this may have been where Michael Bay began to go wrong because we start we start with an introduction from NRA loving Charlton Heston uh, you know, telling us, you know, it's happened before. This thing killed the dinosaurs. It will happen again. And it's like, oh, that's doing wonders for my anxiety. Obviously, there's a reason why I'm watching these movies. It's to confront the absolute worst possibility and watch a bunch of oil rig workers f- fix it and save us. Mm. So, um. It's a shame they can't drill a hole in other stuff. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and then we we cut to uh, um, some uh, some dude working on a space station, and uh, uh, you know, decent, good, honest, down home cowboy Billy Bob Thornton uh, played. Uh, his character is called Truman, mm. and, and I was like, wow, he's called Truman, and he has a and disability, he has a leg brace, and he's a good man who saves he's America. A good dude who was an engineer because he really wanted to be an astronaut but couldn't, and that's fine. That's that, that's a good character. You know, there's a there's a point later on which I'll explain where they kind of pit him against someone else, and the optics don't look fantastic, especially today. But uh, honestly, the Billy Bob Thornton character, I'll give you a buffalo nickel if you calm down. He's kind of got a comforting side to him. It's also nice to see Billy Bob Thornton playing a good man because usually he's playing some kind of scumbag. Mm, indeed, and uh, I mean this or this a bad film, Santa. I will, I will give you the heads up now, by the way. This film manages to strum every one of my daddy issues on the way down. Oh, really? Um, and we start with Billy Bob Thornton because my dad wanted to be a pilot and couldn't because he's colourblind, so he had to become an engineer instead. Sorry, I thought you were going to say my dad wanted to be Billy Bob Thornton. It's <laughs> a very specific want. Well, you know, he was married to Angelina Jolie. I could understand that. Yeah, um... He was also divorced from Angelina well, Jolie. Yes, but who isn't? They, they had tattoos and... That's terrible to say. <laughs> She's only divorced like two men. She's a passionate woman. Sometimes she gets married and doesn't mean to. Anyway. Same, same I as I don't Billy mean Bob to criticise Angelina Jolie there yeah. at all. Anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> speaking of nice guys, we then immediately cut to a guy looking through his telescope. And he's like, ah, honey, could you uh, get me my little black medical book or something like that? Or my, my book of numbers so I can phone people about the meteorite I'm seeing in the sky. And this old bitch named Dottie uh, goes, you know, I want a divorce. You old bastard. And he's, you know, I've got this feeling that the Earth might actually be in genuine danger. And we should rise above our uh, petty arguments with each other, Dottie. And, uh, and, and like, this is now. This is our time. We've got to do the best for humanity. No, he just starts screaming at her. Get my medical book! Get my numbers! You fat bitch! Go get my goddamn phone book! 
And then after that, he's talking to the government he wants, says, I want to call this meteorite Dottie. And his wife's like, oh, that's sweet of you. And he goes, because she's a vicious, life-sucking bitch from which there's no escape. And Dottie gives him the finger and it's like, we really are supposed to think that this guy's a card, aren't we? My ex-wife still misses me, but her aim is getting better. Her aim is getting better. You see, it's... It's funny because marriage is terrible. Then on to uh, New York City, as shot by the auteur Michael Bay. And it's got those customary zoom Literally in. shot. He was there with a shotgun taking pop like shots. The, it's got those, like, like, like the, the camera scoots across the screen and goes, oh my God, motion, something's happening, while the music goes... Dun, 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 dun. And then... There's a funny black guy because Michael Bay thinks that all black people are funny, and uh, he then I mean, gets. Michael Clark Duncan's hilarious, so I am not going to argue with that. And he has a funny little dog, and uh, he gets into a fight with, I believe, he's going to be a Hawaiian guy because the, uh, the the funny black guy calls him a fat pineapple eating motherfucker. Excellent. And uh, then. The, the, but it's because he um, got in the way of his cart or his dog or something got in the way of this guy. And then as punishment for not liking the little dog, the Hawaiian guy gets destroyed by a meteorite. And this is when I realised that um, Jonathan Hensley wrote and co-produced this. And the actual scenes we're seeing of New York being lit up like a fucking Christmas tree as these smallish explosions... Uh, you know, strike the buildings as as hamburger-sized meteorites come down and fuck everything up. Reminds me a little bit of the beginning of Die Hard with a Vengeance, which came from his original screenplay. But the co-writer of this screenplay was J.J. Abrams. And I think that might account for why it actually does kind of have a heart in it. And there is some earnestness in there. And it makes me wonder, considering that Star Trek and the first Transformers film were both written by... Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi, what would a J.J. Abrams-directed Transformers have felt like without the focus on a teenage boy's masturbatory fantasies? Mm. Yeah? Yeah. He was doing Mission Impossible 3 at the time, so there wasn't really that that space for him. And he was already going up in the world because Lost had been a big deal and like he he had his sights set on directing at this point. So I think Mission Impossible 3 was his first um, cinematic directorial debut. Obviously, Alias had, uh, had done gangbusters, but, but at this point in 1998, he wasn't yet there. He had, however, been uh, little Jamie Abrams, uh, who had done a whole bunch of screenplays, including Regarding Henry that we saw recently, and uh, Filofax the Movie, uh, a.k.a. Taking Care of Business with Jim Belushi. Mm-hmm. So he was on the way up, and uh, I think he, he may have probably helped Armageddon feel like it was for humans. At times, uh, even though Michael Bay seems to have fought him every step of the way to make it more of a Michael Bay film. Mm. And I feel like, um, I just want to check the actual timeline on this. Deep Impact came out on May the 8th, 1998. And Armageddon, that everyone was well aware of by this point, because the trailers were all out and it was like, oh my God, two meteorite things came out in July. So May, June, July. This means that they were in post-production when Michael Bay would have gone to the cinema to see Deep Impact. And he probably sat and watched the beginning and went, you didn't even blow shit up at the beginning. What the fuck are you doing? We are going to cream you. And they did. I I checked the amounts of money that they uh, cost and they made. Uh, Deep Impact was $80 million and made $349 which is not inconsiderable. Like, it made a large amount of money. People were suddenly like, oh my god, what if a meteorite hit the earth? Well, I want to see this one right now. And Armageddon, the sort of the runner-up 
cost 140 million, but because of what it is and because of how it is what it is,、mm. it made 553 million. So it cost more and it made more. Harry S. Stamper and Dan Truman. Wasn't Truman's first name Harry? Oh my God, you're right. Harry S. Truman, the 33rd US president. That means if you combined Bruce Willis and Willie Bob Thornton using the Brundlefly machine, then our president would just pop out. And、um, you know, most likely be able to lead the Ameri- America to victory. Okay, so it's not a subtle point they're making. It's really not regarding America saving the world's ass. Absolutely, immediately post-war. Here we go. We're going to save the world. I mean,、mm. it's it's base, was, so you、yeah. kind of expect it. And he was leading up to it. Obviously, it's on his mind because he then went and did Pearl Harbor. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for all of what I just said there, Deep Impact is a much more North America-centric movie. Nothing happens in the rest of the world for Deep Impact. Whereas Armageddon's like, see, the shit's happening in Shanghai. There's some kids on the street in Paris.、Mm. This may as well be Italy. You're not wrong. But, I'm not going to give Michael Bay any cookies for that whatsoever, though. Because because other places in the world exist so that he can show. People getting hit by meteorites and exploding. Not just people getting hit and exploded by meteorites. We'll come to that in a minute. Okay.、Uh, unfortunately, since this is New York getting the shit kicked out of it again, second time in two months because it also got the shit kicked out of it at the end of Deep Impact.、Mm-hmm. We get to see the twin towers again, kind of like there's like meteorites have gone through them and they look. You know, damaged, and it's it's like, oh god! There's only a few years of these things left, and they can't wait to get them destroyed on film. This could be a little bit tinfoil hat, but could it possibly be that it's reassuring to movie executives who, by and large, live in Los Angeles, way over on the other coast, to go if the shit hits the fan, New York's, New York's going、it. down. <sighs> Maybe. I mean, there's also San Andreas style. You know, the, the LA gets the shit kicked out of it as well.、That's、Here's、true. what they don't do: big, high budget disaster movie set in Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. That's true. I think Dogma made a point of that, didn't they? Oh God, you're not wrong.、Um, the irony being that filming a disaster movie in Wisconsin would probably be very, very cheap.、Mm. Yeah. Lots of wide open space. Oh my God! The giant gorilla is making his way to Iowa. Okay, so there's a lot of cornfields. And... Yeah, just do some big footprints through the cornfields. <laughs> I mean, that, like Ghostbusters. When we finally get it, this next Ghostbusters film is in fact set in small town America. They realised that they could actually make lower budget movies by doing exactly that.、I've... We may in fact experience a rash of that sort of thing. I fully expect with Stranger from Things Stranger level things kids to have had, to have his own kids by the time that movie comes out. Okay. And then we cut to the actual president in this movie, Stanley Anderson, the name of the actor, the second unluckiest president because he was also the president in The Rock. Oh my god! And we hate movies pointed this out. What a fucking administration! In 1996, Alcatraz gets taken by domestic terrorists.、Mm-hmm. Let's face it, formerly Marines.、Mm-hmm. And he has to deal with it, and he gives the order to bomb the island. And in doing this, he knows the hostages they have will all die. But then, just two years later, a fucking meteorite—it's the size of Texas, sir—is going to kill the Earth. And he's like, you know what? 
George Bush had it easy at this point. However, like I said, he is the second unluckiest president of all time. The first unluckiest president being? Not movie president, but oh. Trump. Oh, okay. In terms of, like, shit that's happening. Like, Trump is lucky in that we can't get rid of him. Trump is unlucky in that a meteorite's about to hit, hit the Earth and then President Stanley Anderson makes sure that it doesn't kill us. That's unlucky, but it's still luckier than the Earth has been under Trump. Okay. Than the Earth has been, yes. I was going to say, he can't really be classed as the unluckiest president because most of the shit is his own fault. That is... Well, most of the shit is is, uh, is the fault of the things that he's a symptom of. Yes. How about that? Indeed. Aside from all the stuff, which, of course, is his fault. Uh, but this is very much the conduit between The Rock and the Transformers movies. It feels like you could watch The Rock, and then you watch this, and then you watch Transformers, and it doesn't feel all that jarring. But if mm. you went... Rock Transformers. Transformers 3, for example, yeah, you'd go, Hack on, oh, what the fuck has happened to this director? Mm. But also, just like Mark Wahlberg in Transformers 4, Bruce Willis is extremely interested in what should and what shouldn't go into his baby girl's vagina. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Um, Liv Tyler is his daughter in this, and her name is Grace. And she's sleeping with a guy who works for him that he kind of treats like a surrogate son, but also kind of hates, named AJ, played by a cocky young Ben Affleck, in a role that I think probably earned him the ire of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And people thought, Ben Affleck's not a good actor. And he had to go and make a lot of films to prove that he, in fact, was a good actor and a good director. But this film, along with Daredevil and Jiggly, the the film that people pointed at and, and went, Ben Affleck's an awful actor. And honestly... AJ's a pretty thin character and Ben Affleck's fairly kind of no, charming. He's a pretty reasonable he's all job right. I can understand why people would reject him roundly because of his sort of emotional meltdown at the end. Mm. Um, and people who are into the kind of the stiff stoicism. stoicism will be like, look at that pathetic little wimp. He's crying because the man he considers his dad is about to sacrifice himself to save him so that he can go back home and marry the woman he loves. Oh, wait. And these same guys then had sons who went on to criticise Peter Parker for crying as he turned into dust. How dare he shed a tear? And how dare Tony Stark be upset? Now's not the time to cry. Half of everyone is ending. You could have saved them and you failed. So what are you making such a big fuss about? In the meantime, these guys reach apoplexy whenever Sony do something they don't like. Uh, Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, But yeah, you know, know, Mark Wahlberg is like, no, bro, you're not going to sleep with my daughter. And then uh, um, Jack Trainer sort of comes along and goes, ah, but I got me Romeo and Juliet card. You can't, you know, it's, it's totally legal. If a cop pulls us over, we got a prior relationship. That means I can put it to that sweet piece of arse. She's looking at me funny. I'm just, I'm wondering if... How Michael, fucking creepy is that film? What relationship does Michael Bay have with his father-in-law? Because hmm. this feels like something very personal that he needs to work out of his system. I don't know, it just feels like... Michael Bay like leaned on that hard in this, at least for the beginning, because obviously Willis's Harry is very disapproving of AJ. And uh, you know, to her credit, Grace is like, "I'm a grown woman. I speak Japanese. I, you know, I, I, I've spent too much time with these oil riggers. You know, could like, what, I, I didn't have a normal life, and Mom left. And you know, this is all your fault, Harry. 
And uh, Bruce Willis is like, yeah, well, I have no comeback to that. No, I have to say, I really like Liv Tyler in this. I really like Liv Tyler in most things. Yeah. But I think she is really good in this. With, With the, again, thin character she's given, she brings a lot of soul to it. Hmm. Speaking of creepy shit, though, uh, there's a character called Rockhound in this, played by Steve Buscemi, and I didn't think of this while I was watching the movie, but while I was looking at my notes, I thought to myself, oh, shit, he was written one way, and then at some point they started steering him in another direction at the same time. Now, tinfoil hats on, folks. Basically, Rockhound keeps talking about, oh, uh, she never told me her age, and uh, they, they keep going on and on about the fact that Rockhound has slept with girls who are clearly underage and he's dodging the police. And it's like, <laughs> that makes him a statutory rapist. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, but he didn't know, so that's just locker room talk. It's so fucking creepy. They, they keep coming back to it for humour. It's it's not just that, though. There are multiple threads that suggest that Rockhound is really not a healthy chap. Yeah. But they make it funny. Yeah. They go, isn't it hilarious that this guy who's got so much potential, because they do make a big point about the fact that he is wicked smart. No, but that's the thing I think they're steering him in the other direction of. I think Buscemi came along and said, and they just improvised the whole, I'm a genius thing during that, like, um, psychoanalysis section. And I think they were like, oh, okay, we like that so much, we're going to make that part of what Rockhound is. I don't think that was in the script. Okay. well, I, I could be wrong. It doesn't feel... Maybe it's testament to Steve Buscemi's acting then, but it doesn't feel that that is infeasible as a as character. Oh, I'm sure players. you can be a sex addict who has a predilection for younger girls and a genius at the same time. I mean, Hannibal exists in fiction, so... But, you could eat people and also be a genius. But my point being that the the negative elements of Rockhound's character are the parts that are played for laughs. Yeah. And that is pretty damn uncomfortable. And his genius doesn't ever really come to anything either, mm. which again makes me feel like he improvised it and they ran with it, but it didn't really... Like, there's no part where Rockhound says something and then it's just like... Boom, mic drop. And that saves the fucking day. It doesn't solve anything, but it does mean that when uh, Bill Fickner is trying to keep from the drilling team what's going on with the ship Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that they've landed in the wrong place, uh, Rockhound knows because he's seen the the screens and he knows what it means. So he works out that they're in the wrong place on the the meteorite and they actually need to be somewhere else so that they can actually drill. I feel like that could actually have been carried out by someone who was not declared to be a genius on screen. Just anyone with, like, you know, anyone who understands maps. Mm. Or how about, how about, and I'm spitballing here, get rid of the paedophile element. Keep the fact that he's a genius. By all means, keep the fact that he likes working on oil rigs because it means he can move around a lot because actually he doesn't like having the kinds of jobs that quote-unquote geniuses are supposed to have. Mm -hmm. All of that is very consistent with that character. I'm not saying don't make him a genius. Uh, I'm saying why is this character... Like, why was his defining characteristic that he's basically a paedophile? Because Michael Bay thinks it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, um... This was around the time that uh, Lyra said the uh, very specific quote, this is incredibly stupid. And I just wrote that down (laughs) just, you know, just to to keep it going. Um, Although almost immediately after that, uh, 
Billy Bob Thornton, Truman, and the president and a bunch of other people are having probably the most important meeting the world has ever known. And uh, they're discussing what's to be done about this. I think it's before they, ha- they hunt down Harry and company. Uh, what's to be done about this um, meteorite? And one, you know, a voice chimes in across the table, you know, you know, there's no point just firing nuclear missiles at it. It'll just create a horrible cloud of nuclear waste that'll rain back down upon us, and this thing will smile at us and keep on coming. And then it's Jason Isaacs, and he went to MIT, and uh, they say, well, what about this expert? He's got the, you know, this is his theory. And then uh, Jason Isaacs is like, well, I happen to know a little bit about that guy, and you don't want someone who cheated in his trigonometry exam or something? Uh, somebody got a C- minus in astrophysics. Yes. Um, and then he sort of gives us a little Star Trek style, like putting too much air in a balloon to explain why you need to put the bomb all the way on the inside, which requires drillers, rather than just blowing it up off the surface. But what I liked about this was he was the smartest man in the room and they fucking listened to him. In subsequent Michael Bay films, there's a paranoia of anybody intelligent mm. and anybody intelligent is duplicitous and works for the government and you don't, you mustn't trust them. The seeds of that are here though. Oh yeah. Because what, what happens is they have this group of all the smartest guys in the room yeah. sat around the table mm-hmm. and they take turns to try and present ideas that they've had that might solve this problem. Now, they haven't got a lot of time to resolve this situation. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the let's all throw our ideas in a hat and see which ones might stand a chance of success still needs to be done. So that's what they're doing. And the whole, can we get somebody who's had a little less caffeine? Well, what if the guy who's had all the caffeine and is shitting bricks because there's a meteorite about to hit the earth actually happens to have the best idea, but you're not letting him share it? If you have all the caffeine, you do, in fact, shipwrecks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and then the, the the idea of the solar sails that might then catch the solar winds and blow it off course. Mm. I mean, do you know what you have to come up with to get the right idea? Nine wrong ideas, mm-hmm. minimum. Yeah. But what they want is somebody who is... Shoulders upright, straight back, calm, able to look them straight in the eye and give them one solution that has a, st- a chance of work. So what you mean is they what they want is your mechanic dad. Yes. And they bring in Bruce Willis, who plays your mechanic dad. Yes. And Bruce Willis looks at all of these technical people and goes, you fucking idiots. Yeah. You're going to blow your camshafts. Yeah. And then he points to the engine and, and says, oh, the, which cowboy did this? Starts pulling shit out and goes, I have to, I have to go in there, pull out the Do you know what? butt plugger. <laughs> the thing that makes this film the least realistic is that at no point does Bruce Willis go... He's also never holding a cup of tea. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but the, so it was, it's weird because, like, I feel like the J.J. Abrams lines are the um, uh, yeah, the, the Jason Isaacs character mm. and the Michael Bay shunting us towards. No, no, no! You've got to listen to the salt of the earth. These fucking experts don't know their shit. Mm. So you've got this weird push pull on the movie. Rockhound's clever. He's also a paedophile. It's like. Just so the movie is going in two directions at once, but at least one of those directions is good. Mm. So it does have some good things going, unlike Deep Impact, which is going in no direction. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Bay walked off with all the directions, basically. Mm. So then Harry gets a visit from a Japanese businessman on his oil rig, and it's like uh, that's how they start. 
the film. It's episode four of uh, Harry's Oil Rick. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it it turns out, the, the, as usual, like the, the whole thing blows. There's a big oil explosion thingy, and it's all Ben Affleck's fault. And the Japanese businessman like gives the thumbs up. He's thrilled yeah. to be here during this accident. I was like, no, he wouldn't be. He'd no. be like, oh, this is terrible. I'm not investing in can this. I, can I just make the point, by the way, that when we meet Harry... The thing he's doing as part of his introduction is hitting golf balls at a Greenpeace boat. Fuck Greenpeace. Just in case you had any concerns about this guy not being as... What's the term you used? Sophia? Hating conservation? I just, yeah, just like appealing to that broadest streak of... Well, he's an oil farmer. Red America. Yeah, yeah. He's an oil farmer. He went out to the oil lands and yeah. he dug his plot and, and he invested his money. Specifically as well, he's like a little family-based oil farmer, unlike those big industrial oil farms at mm. Exxon and Mobil. He's a hard-working man. Yes, he is. And then the Japanese businessman's like, I'm going to make AJ my chief of partying down. Something like which that, Which pisses yes. off Harry. Indeed. Um, I, I just want to say, I know I didn't think that I'd get a shoe comment in on this, but I question whether those heels are really the best thing for Liv Tyler to be wearing on a, a, an oil rig made entirely of grid metal. Mm, there is that. I mean, like, even if you are turning up to be polite to a Japanese businessman, flats, like, they are smart not, flats. They're not massive heels, but I think, you know, something with a bit more of a... Oomph. Of, of a solid base Flat. would be a good idea. Well, but maybe that's just me. I am very sneakers. paranoid about walking around on grid metal because I slipped down a... Virgin Megastore set of stairs once. <laughs> That's very specific. It is very specific, but it did happen and it hurt. Did they make the Virgin Megastore stairs out of a grid? Yeah, metal grid. Oh, shouldn't have done that. No. It's foolish. Mm. Anyone wearing stiletto heels is screwed. Absolutely. I mean, I was wearing trainers and I fell. It's very anxiety ridden. <laughs> so Armageddon. Mm. <laughs> so uh, I believe the soundtrack is entirely Aerosmith, or is it uh, like, does it, do Aerosmith do covers of the Trevor Rabin score? At some point. I don't know. Right. I think there is at least one other Aerosmith song than Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Now I'm wondering, is this because like they were like, we can get Liv Tyler to convince Aerosmith to do all the music, or Liv Tyler's rider was, yeah, I'll do your movie, but my dad's got to do all the music in this film. And I'm a fan of Aerosmith. And Steve Tyler's, you know, his output. But there's a, a point where they say, we can't tell people about this. It would cause mass hysteria. And I was like, yeah, absolutely, yeah. They have to keep this absolutely secret. And they don't bother saying, oh, you know, everyone will just be nice to each other. They say, no, it's going to be dogs and cats living together. Absolute chaos. This can't get out. And by the time it does get out, it's so close to zero hour that it's like, okay, everyone just stand still and listen to your CB radios and we will give you updates as to what the astronauts are doing. And it's all the same time of day across the whole planet. It's all nearly evening. I do have an issue with this, though. Yes. And I, I think you're probably right in that the, the, their concerns that there would be some kind of mass panic are founded. Did I mention and the goo feasting? It's, it's slightly different for Deep Impact because they have literally months before this thing hits. Uh, there's no way that they could keep it under wraps for that long. Um, 
Whereas in this case, it's a matter of days before they, they can get this sorted out. I think this they do mention that, that the guy who screamed at his wife and named it Dottie saw it oh, a long while ago. So they have, in fact, kept it under wraps successfully for a very long time. OK, all right. That's fair enough then. Oh, actually, yeah, no, you're right. They say they've been training the drill team for eight months. Bingo. Okay. Eight months. Right. So they have, in fact, so have been lying to the whole world. Everything's fine. Right. Continue your lives as okay. normal. OK, then that removes the one element of... Yeah, all right, I'll give you that, that I was going to give them. Which was? So here's the thing. You might make a perfectly accurate assumption that the world will be at each other's throats until this thing hits. Mm -hmm. But you don't get to make that choice for the rest of the world, America. You are not the only people who've got eyes in the sky. And I don't believe for even a second that Russia or China or somebody who's got a space programme that's more than two pieces of string in a tin can... At this point, Russia are telling America what to do. Well, then they know about it, don't they? they what, it's, <laughs> yeah, but Putin's style is to not tell people. Yeah, but the, the bit that really baffles me is when they're doing that thing where you see all the different countries around the world and, and the impact that the little meteorites are having on them. Oh, yeah, these hamburgers the are fucking up Shanghai. The big piece that Shanghai. comes down on China? Yep. I was sat there going, I don't believe for a second the Chinese government doesn't know this is coming. Yeah. And, and if they don't, it's highly irresponsible of you, America, not to give them a heads up so that they can evacuate. You're forgetting, sweetheart. It takes a good, old-fashioned, wife-hating American man to spot a meteorite. I stand corrected. It takes an old bastard to see meteorites. Or an Elijah Wood. I don't know if we mentioned in the original... Like, in Deep Impact, a guy sees... The meteorite, and then gets in his jeep to drive to the meteorite delivery station and just deposit his news, and a fucking truck runs him off the road, and it's like, is this absolutely vital to the plot? Couldn't he just have told somebody? And then a little boy named Biederman sees it, and he gets all the glory, and all the apparently all the sex. With Lily Sobieski. Mm. Okay. Lucky him? Yep. Question mark? There we go. Um, the uh, soundtrack, by the way, was not exclusively Aerosmith, but they did record three songs for it. Yes, I know. But the thing is, when you hear Steve Tyler sing three songs in a row, you start to think all music is Aerosmith, <laughs> or you're just listening to an just Aerosmith album. Just all music generally is Aerosmith. He, he kind of takes over that way. Mm. Everything's Steve Tyler flavoured when he's been around. The drillers have riders for uh, uh, what's going to... To, to do the job that they've been set the task of. You know, every single one of them should say, shit, yeah, I'll do it, because otherwise, if I don't, I just sit there and watch this thing crash down and kill me. But, you know, they have riders. They they want to... Well, the, the one that stuck out for me was Michael Clark Duncan wants to sleep for one night in the White House. One summer. One summer in, in the, the Lincoln House, bedroom. In the Lincoln bedroom. And I was like, you know what? Can Michael Clark Duncan just actually be president, yep, please? Yeah, we're just going to move him into the East Wing and he's going to stay. I'm going to go ahead and say that the ghost of Michael Clark Duncan would be a million times better, even if interpreted through an old woman on a Ouija board... Than Trump. Concur. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the last one is, and we never want to pay taxes ever again. 
And it's like, boom. Oh, my God. Yeah, imagine that. If you, the farmer, never had to pay taxes, then you could be ungoverned forever. And it's like, you really are just stoking the flames of this anti-government fucking mentality that he continued to do throughout all of the uh, Transformers films. Mm. That the government are agents. They're going to sneak in, try and take your shit. You shouldn't trust them. The I mean, I, I kind of understand why. Because let's not forget that the USA was founded on... I don't want to have to pay taxes. Mm. Like, and then suddenly they ended up paying taxes. How did this happen? every major decision was based on, I don't want to have to pay taxes. But if that military that you love so much is going to be there, guess what you need? Taxes. taxes. Can't just have a militia. Do you know Much what? as you might want it. I, I, I would really like to see... If oh, I... and the police force as well. This enormous drain on your taxes. So, yeah... No taxes. That's the idea of heaven for these guys. Because why should any hard-working, good American have to pay for things like roads and schools and healthcare and the emergency services and prisons and social security and paying off the national debt and benefits for federal retirees and veterans and safety net programs for the impoverished? and science and medical research. Side note, I checked the pie chart and 2% of American federal income tax goes into education. 2%, while eight times that goes on defense and international security assistance. Because an uneducated populace is much easier to control and manipulate. Actual vampire Udo Kier turns up as a psychoanalyst. I think, like I said, this is just a sequence of them, the actors just ad-libbing, and some of them are funnier than others. Mm. I'm not sure what this is supposed to achieve, because the conclusion is these people are all about to crack, and they're off the scale, Um, but... The audience is supposed to think, no, these people are all extremely fun and funny and I definitely want to follow them. At no point does do any of them really crack, apart from Rockhound, who almost fucks the whole thing up with his gun antics. You know, a lot of it is just the usual Michael Bay psychology is bollocks thing. Piece of cake. Look, you want to compare brain pans? I won the Westinghouse Prize when I was 12. Big deal. Published at 19, so what? I got a double doctorate from MIT at 22. Chemistry and geology. I taught at Princeton for two and a half years. You know, I think this might be the most uncomfortable room I've ever been in in my life. Why do I do this? Because the money's good, the scenery changes, and they let me use explosives, okay? Okay, you want to be all psychological with me? That's fine. I'll tell you one thing that really drives me nuts is people who think that Jethro Tull is just a person in the band. Who's Jethro Tull? My favorite dish is haggis. Heart, lungs, liver. You shove that all in a sheep's stomach, then you boil it. That'll put some hair on your ass. I am not crazy. I'm just a little emotional right now, okay? Y'all throwing all this stuff at me, man. But get, I mean, after this is over, could I, like, get a hug from you or something? Okay, Cyclops lady's starting to bug me. Can you handle that? I mean, I can handle what I'm, you know, I'm going to do. I can handle that, but I don't know if I can handle this room. Woman with large breasts. Woman with medium breasts. Here's Harry giving me a hard time. And uh, this is Harry telling me it's not good enough. And uh, this is Harry telling me I can't marry his daughter. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Just let it out. <laughs> I suffered a major head injury when I was in high school. This one looks like you. With breath. Yeah, I can handle it. Yeah, I can handle it. 
Also, I'm not entirely sure what these psycholo psychological interviews are supposed to achieve at this point, because they've already established that this is the team that's going up. I mean, I suppose they could be testing them for cracks so that they make sure they've got something in place to support their inevitable meltdowns. I suppose it's... Uh, well, they don't seem to be interested in getting them any help. Like, they'll train them physically, but they won't prepare them mentally. Mm. Brilliant. Okay, then. But again, the uh, uh, the the old drillers know best, and uh, they're, they're telling the experts what's what. And yeah, fair enough. Um, there's a "Will you marry me?" section where AJ is getting cozy with uh, Grace in a pipe. In a pipe, and he says, "Will you marry me?" Um, and she does this kind of look that's like, hmm, "You might be dead on a meteorite in." a few days' time, and thinking about it, I might be dead under a meteorite in a few days' time. Um, I'm trying to think. Because, like, if I say yes, and then you die on a meteorite, what does that mean? If I say no, oh, you're already putting the ring on my finger. Okay, cool, fine. I guess my actual genuine response to that one is not necessary at this point. <sighs> it's weird. Will you marry me? Yeah, you will. <laughs> Just sliding I was this say, thing yeah. right I mean, on it's, there. it's obviously meant to imply that that from the smile on her face, she means, "Oh, AJ, yes, of course, I'll marry you." But the implication is also a woman's explicit verbal consent is not entirely necessary. I mean, it's also a very loaded question at a very tentative time. Mm. She honestly was required to think about that one and give him a proper answer. Mm. Well, you know, if you're doing the whole war, war, rah, rah, what woman would be heartless enough not to say, oh, yes, of course I'll marry you to a man who's about to go off and risk his life? Well, yeah, but at the same time... I don't think that's a good thing, by the way, <laughs> just to clear up any doubt around that. I'm not saying that that's, that's positive, but that I think that's probably what Michael Bay's implication is. It takes away her agency because he's like, guess what I'm doing, babe? I'm saving the fucking earth, so you better say yes. Exactly. Don't wanna close my eyes. I don't wanna fall asleep because I'd miss you, babe. And I don't wanna miss a thing. It's uh, then immediately followed by them lying on their backs next to a car in a sunny field at dusk, and he's putting animal crackers in her pants. Like, he's just sliding these things. I don't know how many he's gotten in there, like five or six? There may be a whole box just in those underpants. Crumbs! No! Yeast infection. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, a sweet scene. I relish the first half of this film because once they're in space it's very samey visually and honestly it's it's very samey in terms of what happens of the action it's 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 darkness and silence wrapped in death and destruction and see how good you are at drilling when your eyeballs are bleeding and, and so, like also michael bay shooting stuff on earth mm. he can do all that sort of like lovely magic hour 
um, sunset footage, and it, it looks good. This film, and we watched it on Blu-ray for the first time today, so basically it looked the best it has, it has since 1998, so for 22 years it's not looked this good. This film does look good, so when people say, oh, he's a really good action director, when I look at this stuff, I'm like... I mean, yeah, once they get into space and it starts being pulse-pounding, he's it's kind of, like, got me on edge, but when that is said in reference to the Transformers movies, with a sort of spiralling metal puke just going through the mid-air in slow motion, um, I, I, I can't agree. That's not good action. He's doing exactly the same thing with this as he does with the Transformers movies, though, mm-hmm. which, in the sense... A lot of noise and everything's important. It's, yeah, and, and he's taking your uh, emotional reactions on a roller coaster ride of sorts that once you're on it, it will slalom back and forth in various different directions and it will not stop until it gets to the end. Now... That may be some people's definition of a good direct, uh, action director. It's not mine. He is a competent photographer in the sense that he can put together a shot that looks reasonable. Mm. And by reasonable, we mean glossy magazine ad or YouTube travel channel calibre. We've been watching a lot of that while we've been on lockdown. Some of that stuff is really gorgeous to look at. And Michael Bay missed his calling there. Um, I'm, and he's an auteur in terms of you can see a shot from Michael Bay and go, well, that's Michael Bay then. Yeah, in the sense that when you see a Jackson Pollock, you know it's Jackson Pollock. It's <laughs> shit sprayed all over it. But there are plenty of directors who try to be like Michael Bay and kind mm. of fail. They get almost yeah. there and not quite. There's he's- a certain gung-ho, big summer, real deal event dumbness but we're not really taking this seriously that Michael Bay has absolutely and as I said for some people I think that probably is their definition of good action it puts me on a roller coaster I do the twisty turny thing my emotions go all over the place my chemicals go up down backwards and sideways I get to the end I'm panting and and um, feeling somewhat shaken but I've just been on a rip-roaring ride and a lot of people enjoy that but I said the same exact thing when we did the Transformers movies my brain does that all the time anyway I don't want a film that's going to do that to me and then say I had a good experience out of it it equates to a loss of control exactly Uh, this is still on earth Will Patton uh, Bruce Willis's mate goes to see his ex-wife and there's a little boy on the porch and he's like, hey, son. And she's like, you can't come around here. And it's like this, like he's very quiet and reserved and he's not trying to be aggressive. He just wanted to see his son before he probably went to die. Mm. But he also can't really tell her what he's doing. Well, he, yeah, he doesn't call him son. And very specifically, he his mum, the, the kid's mum says that's a salesman and he immediately goes along with that and, and yeah. kind of slips into the, yeah. the fakery. Um, he's not really trying to push anything. It's a nice scene. Mm, it's yeah. It's got complexity to it. And then it's immediately followed by big zooming in through a fucking strip club as this yep. girl's riding Steve Buscemi. Yep. And, you know, he's borrowed a bunch of bucks from a mobster and it's just like jiggling titties. And again... The emotions slaloming backwards and forth and zooming around, he does the same exact thing with his dramatic scenes. And that's what you were saying, I think, about the fact that the tone is all over the fucking place. Well, like I said, it's got a good movie mm. and a, a, a very obnoxious movie. Not necessarily a bad one, and but... And you're a, watching one with each eye and they're trying to converge on each it's other. It's in scary, stereoscopic. <laughs> <laughs> One's got animal crackers in its pants. 
the other one's got jiggling titties. <laughs> uh, no, those two are the same movie. Okay. I call her Animal Crackers. Everybody talking about what it is, what it ain't. Kiss on the devil and you piss off a saint. But it can't be love if you don't have to crawl. You say you don't need nothing, but you got to have it all. Uh, then the next day, they uh, you know walk in slow motion towards the, uh, uh, the the rocket, and then they lift off. And there's a big stirring speech from the president, while people around the world gather around their little radios like it's the 1940s. And um, you know you see like lots of shots of, of Kennedy and and like you know people kid flying a shuttle as they walk in. Some of this is conflated with how it ends, which is kind of the bookend of that scene. And uh, it's kind of, I, I can't not like it because it's the whole world coming together to what, to witness, uh, uh, you know, the fact that we are technically able to defend ourselves from extinction. That is something close to my heart. And I can't not like this, even though it's emotionally manipulative. Mm. And it also, it twins in with NASA and the exceptional pushing forwards of Star Trek and, and uh, just being able to to break the bonds of the Earth and actually do things that we shouldn't be even able to do. There's an invasiveness to that, but there's also a literal elevation of our species and an adventure to that. And there's also a moving out there. And in this case, it being to protect everyone mm. is kind of wonderful. So again, Armageddon isn't shit. It's mm. just confused about how it's being itself. The emotionally manipulative thing, because um, this does tend to get brought up with a lot of, of big movies. Especially Pearl Harbor and... and it gets Titanic got labelled with yeah. that as well. And Pearl and Harbor I, was an attempt to ride the tan- Titanic train. So was Attack of the Clones. Yeah, and I, I feel the, like... The Titanic boat. Calling a film out for being emotionally manipulative is like calling a car out for having wheels. That's kind of what it's meant to do. Or calling a song out for being in a key that's melancholy. Yeah, I mean, the the question mark is over how effectively the director manages to do it. How authentic do the emotions it creates and and pulls out of you feel? I think people who uh, say that, a lot of the time, uh, are just speaking from the heart, that they particularly prefer... More slight emotions. Absolutely. Emotions yeah. that something are more... Something that just puts the emotion on the table it's and there. you can pick it up or yeah. not. It's up to you. So something in a, in a quieter drama. So mm. when it's big and very strong flavoured, yeah. it's like being in the burger bar of emotions and like you're getting ketchup emotions sloshed into your lap. Yeah. Or if you have an acquired taste towards delicate spices and herbs in your food and then someone slooshes hot sauce on your meal with a name like Louisiana Butt Burner and a cartoon of an alligator on the toilet. So I, I understand people consider that these are you know, big, strong flavours and broad splashes of emotion, and that sometimes it could be overwhelming. I appreciated that because it's in the middle of quite a lot of obnoxiousness, and it's like, well, if you shut up for a bit and yeah. just focus on this and look at all these people, mm. you know? Yeah, and personally, the, the those big emotions are something that I really appreciate in a film because part of what I'm engaging with a movie for is to practice those emotions. It's also noteworthy that the theme tune to Steamheart is not a million miles off this. Yeah. 
First you get the rhythm, which evokes the trotting of horses. And the tone of it suggests sunshine and wide open American spaces. Then you get the melody. which evokes bravery and an intrepid spirit. It communicates with you musically that this is something that only some people are going to be able to do. And they are aware that it is likely there is a price to be paid. And then it comes in with the flute of the same melody to suggest that there is a hope that is more delicate, that it needs to be looked after and kept alive. There's also an Irish lilt to it, which makes us think of early emigration to form America. And like Titanic, it evokes shipbuilding and our general ability to construct things that move us across vast spaces. Steamheart, Titanic, these shuttles. And then the big emotion comes crashing in and makes you think of wheels turning and fire firing. Heroes stepping up to protect everyone else and journeying out to do the thing. It's a scoring that people appreciate. And honestly, if Armageddon had come out a few years after this, it probably would have made closer to a billion because people would have been used to all going to the cinema and seeing the big thing, you know? At this point, a film was very successful if it made between four and $500 million. Notably, Titanic, and this includes re-releases, made $2.194 billion. So some might say that even though those brush strokes are broad, a lot of people like those brush strokes. We will be covering Titanic in 2021's James Cameron season. We just have to finish the Spielberg season first. So uh, they go up into space and they meet a Russian cartoon played by Peter Stormare, who, by the way, has been content to basically play this character over and over again. In Russia, space station lands on you! It's... It's, it does as well. Yeah, it's that. And like at this point, that's when the film kind of enters into a lot of shouting, a lot of whizzing and spinning around, a lot of, you know, steam vents venting steam, a lot of going up and down ladders, a lot of zooming through darkness, a lot of rocks in space. Uh, there's a lot of that. And a lot of shouting at each other over, you know, what we've got to do next. Uh, and... The crash when it happens, like they get out of this space station and uh, they had to refuel there. And then the two ships fly directly towards the um, meteorite and one of them starts to go down. And it's really quite upsetting because it sustains that, oh shit, we're crashing for fucking ages. And these men are roaring in terror, absolute fucking terror and panic as they have nothing left to cling on to, they're being yanked out into space and showered with rocks and killed by the elements. And it's 
I mean, it is, it's oblivion. There's an almost Lovecraftian feel to it. Like, these men are like, oh no, the abyss! And it's just wrecking this ship. And they moider Owen Wilson, who was this bit part character. And it's like, wow, he could almost honestly have actually been the AJ character and that would have been fine. But, you know, imagine AJ if he wasn't this smartass and was just kind of this down-home country boy played by uh, Owen Wilson. Mm. And, you know, he was kind of timid and he was like, I don't know what, you know, how to talk about this with Harry, you know? And obviously if Owen Wilson had been a known person at that point, that would probably have happened. At this stage, I think because um, Buena Vista distributed this, they also distributed Rushmore. So I think he got in Mm. because he was in with Wes Anderson, maybe. I think there's one very important reason why they wouldn't have done that, though, and that's that uh, Owen Wilson is very different from Bruce Willis and the whole point mm. of AJ is, is that, that they're very similar uh, yeah. Grace falls in love with him because he's just like her dad and Harry likes him resentfully because he feels like AJ is just like mm. he was when he was his age there's this weird kind of abusive father like you know I'm trying to shoot you with a shotgun but I do kind of love you really I would just never say it mm. about these two in yeah, this yeah this film. is how I show you I love you I shoot you in the ankle with a shotgun I'm going to shoot him full of love yeah that came out wrong <laughs> um but again, it does reinforce that whole, you know, every daddy's girl will go for somebody who is just like her dad. Yeah. I would just like to make the point here that Alex is not like my dad very much. There are some similarities. The fact that all these men were screaming as they were being sucked out into oblivion made me realise, oh shit, there's one woman up here. Mm-hmm. One personality-free, non-named character woman who doesn't really do much in the whole film. She's just there to press buttons, and it feels very much like, we must have a bit of a woman. Well, there's a point where she's trying to fix the ship so that they can, the the thrusters on the ship so that they can take off once the bomb's been set, Mm. and it's everything's fritzed out. And Peter Stormare keeps telling her, get out of my way, woman. I mean, he doesn't say... Get out of way, woman. That's the and then he hits something with a wrench and, and then, turns out no, percussive no, no. mechanics actually work. It does work, yeah. But the point being that he, he basically says, if you don't get out of my way, I am going to manually lift you and move you out of the way so that I can do this thing. And then he does precisely that. He literally shoves her out of the way so that he can come in and do the hitting things with a spanner. I'm going to say Bill Fickner, who is the astronaut who ends up butting heads with uh, Bruce Willis, he wants to blow up the nuclear warhead when they they break their drill and they can't get into the... Or it's like, at that point, is it that they've almost broken their drill? They've Things keep going wrong with the drill, and I think they the transmission snaps or, or gets damaged or something, and mm. they can't continue. He's like, I, I'm not taking this risk. We, just, we yeah. just do it now. Much as I love Bill Finkner, you and your friends are dead! Imagine if this was a woman played by Kate Blanchett, and she is absolutely dead set on doing this for America. And you know, that's a powerful female force in the film who isn't just his daughter. Mm. Just a suggestion, but it is one fucking boys club of a movie. Oh, hell's My you. God. And it's also no- noteworthy that Dottie, this... Uh, Asteroid is probably the only other noteworthy woman in the film. Hmm. Uh, this life sucking bitch who clearly, absolutely hates them. She's going, Rah! I'm gonna kill you. Like the whole movie, once they're actually on her, they just, you know, she's Rah! just roaring and throwing shit at them. And it's the most hostile, inhospitable, nightmarish place imaginable. Hmm. And because it's just this over and over again, that's why the, the second half of this movie gets kind of samey. Hmm. 
you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it was shot in a, a closed-off, darkened studio, and it feels like it was a closed-off, darkened studio. It doesn't have that the dynamism of range of these big open blue skies. So it's almost like at this stage, Michael Bay may have wanted to pass over to Ridley Scott or something, and like you know, they they two hand it. God, could you imagine a a Bay Scott? Like maybe no, I was gonna say. Tony Scott. Maybe Ridley and Tony could have done it together. They were both alive at the time. Mm. Yeah. Because Tony Scott is clearly the godfather of Michael Bay's style. If you look at Top Gun, that is a fucking Bay film waiting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Last Boy Scout and Beverly Hills Cop 2. That is the style that Michael Bay went, yes, I totally want to do that. Mm. But with less gentlemen's butts. He does have them playing with the boys, though. At one point, Michael Clark Duncan's like, check out this body. And he's sort of, you know, undulating around. And it's like, that. yep, that is that is a fine bear. He's even called bear. Yep, it's a little on the nose. Mm. He survives. Does he survive? Uh, it's really hard to remember. I think he does. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like, if you fucking kill Michael Clark Duncan in this film, you are heartless. Mm. But... Yeah, I think he's just one of the people who just sort of stands around in the background once they get him to where he's going. I think the only the only crew member that they actually lose, apart from Harry, is Oscar, Owen Wilson. Yeah. Everybody else that's on their crew comes back. The rest of the people who die are all um There's the other there's the, 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 the round guy. Max. Yeah? He was singing into the microphone at one oh, point. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, Max does die. He's on the uh, the first armadillo with the... Put it like this, there's four portraits off. at the end, mm. and it's Harry, Oscar, Max, and then some guy no one remembers, possibly one of the astronauts. I don't know, maybe he was... No, I think he actually was one of their friends. He was like an enforcer for the mob or something. Oh, okay. oh, yeah, the one who went to the strip club with them. The person that they didn't bother to characterise much because they knew he was going to die. That's the one. Yeah. Kind of like uh, he was uh, Slipknot in Suicide Squad. Mm. Armageddon's way better than Suicide Squad, by the way. Uh, this is the point that I said that the optics weren't particularly fantastic. Bill Fickner's like, I've got to blow this thing up. And he's going to sabotage the whole Earth because the science isn't right. He's not going to actually be able to destroy this thing. It'll, it would just end up, at best, splitting into two smaller asteroids which strike the Earth simultaneously on two, in two different areas. Well, the, the point is, if they detonate the um, warhead on the surface, it won't do anything. It'll just maybe knock it a bit. Mm. And they haven't even started drilling at this point. So they right. haven't even got a trench they could put it in or yeah. something. So basically it's... Apart from all the trenches that surround it's, the area. It's a lack of faith in the plan that they set out with. He's convinced they're going to run out of time. Yeah. So he's like, let's just do what we can do right now. And then yeah. we've done something. It's almost giving in to despair, but not quite. It's quite. A, it's a difficult situation. There's a lot of people shouting at each other. Mm. And it's it really just comes down to, you've got to trust me, the oil driller. Yeah, it's like he can't hold his nerve until the first mm. part of the job is completed. But Fickner's astronaut is answering to uh, Keith David's military general. Mm. So you've got this big black guy in charge who's got Fitz's role from the West Wing. And from this point onwards, every single military general would be played by a big imposing black guy. Mm. And then you've got Truman... The good down home cowboy with the the gammy leg, who's um, 
kind of like trying to he's helping to sabotage the bomb from you know off off to one side so you've got this black guy trying to doom us all and you've got this good white guy trying to help us and it's like and when the military march in to take over the nasa operations mm-hmm. room most of the soldiers at the front are black fuck so i mean it's coding i don't know whether michael knows he's doing it but I would personally have swapped their roles and had Keith David play the NASA guy who actually helps give them the codes and uh, Billy Bob Thornton be the general who wants to blow it up because he's got that look in his eye where he's like, I could just, I would, I will fucking blow this whole thing up sky high. That's just, you know, I, I would have been uh, more pleased to see that as the dynamic on screen. Mm. But say la vie, it's a Michael Bay film. We're lucky we didn't get the twins. Enough is- Yo, lay out! That's cause you're the worst. You me to that car, right? So- Ooh, I think he's scared. Hey, Mudflap, what are we gonna do with this shrimp taco? You know, just bubba capping his ass, throw him in the truck, and then nobody gonna know nothing, not me. Not in my trunk. Why don't you get a haircut with your bitch ass? Go whine to your boyfriend. And we're also lucky that Keith David is not funny in this film. Like, he's not doing the thing that means black men are all mm. funny, like the guy at the beginning yeah. and Michael Clark Duncan throughout. Mm. The more black people are on screen, Mr. Bay, then you can have a funny one and one who's totally serious. Some variety of And character. one who's in between. And one who's worried all the time and one who's clever. And, you know, just... You convey the message that people of colour can be different things that way. Maybe include some women of colour who aren't outrageously sassy. Let's not go nuts. Right. Um, no, let's. Let's go nuts. <laughs> Who is? Shut up, Grandma! What are you doing here? Just give me a break, will you? Grandma, I'm gonna take your prune juice! There's an amusing line where uh, AJ decides he's they, they're driving the remaining drill back. Um, that everyone thinks they're dead, and it's like they've got they've got a drill. They've got a backup. Um, I like the idea that NASA always send two. You know, they've always got a backup. So it's, it's, that actually pays off in this. Mm. And uh, he However, re- it does give the lie to uh, what Billy Bob Thornton says to uh, Bruce Willis at the very beginning of mm-hmm. the film, when Bruce Willis says to him, you've got a backup plan, right? You're NASA. You always have a backup plan. And he's like, no, no, this is it. And then later on he says, we're NASA. We always double up. We always have a backup. Well, you didn't at the beginning of the movie. It's not so much a backup plan as to do the first plan twice. Well- <laughs> True. And and the backup plan, if at all, is our backup plan is to sabotage the first plan. Okay, good mm, plan. Right. Good. Nice. Uh, yeah, so there's a funny line. I don't know, this is a big lead up to just a line, but they're, they've just they've got to jump over a cliff, uh, you know, between a ravine to another cliff, and it's a Dukes of Hazard thing. And he says, you ever heard of Evil Knievel to Peter Stormare's Russian? And he goes, I never saw Star Wars. And I'm like, wow, honestly, most of the millennials in the audience at this point wouldn't know who Evil Knievel is, and fucking good luck with Generation Z at this point. Mm. And if you're a millennial who does know who Evil Knievel was, well done. I don't think Armageddon is really a movie that's intended to be watched 20 years down the line. Do you think? No. Mm. It feels very 90s. Mm. It does. Very nice. I mean, the fact that like it has the Twin Towers at the beginning very specifically dates it mm. to like this... Um, it's It's also very... There's a griminess and a grimness that crept into films, even Michael Bay films... Mm. After this, you know, it's yeah. uh, even his, his Transformers films, while they have the same kind of skies as this, there is very much a watch out for Middle Eastern terrorists thing going on in 2007. Mm. 
And Rockhound despairs at this point. And I was wondering whether that really feels relevant to the film. He, Steve Buscemi, who's been pitched as a genius and also a pedophile and didn't really need to be both, could just have been a genius who was quirky and said strange things, um, a funny-looking guy, could, you know, the, the, the fact that he basically kind of... He takes over a minigun and starts carving up the landscape, going, woo And then he rides the bomb like Slim Pickens. And it, it feels like if he is a genius then it could just be that he's got so much fucking perspective that his mind is exploding at this point, which would have been an interesting angle on that, but, of course, difficult to convey if you're, if you're painting your film in very broad strokes. Get off the nuclear warhead. I was doing that guy from that movie, you know, Slim Pickens, where he rides it all the way in, the nuclear warhead. No. I didn't see that one, huh? We got 700 feet of hole to dig, Rockhound. All right, just just wanted to feel the power between my legs, brother. Hey, Sharp. No nukes, no nukes, no nukes. You got any more bullets in that gun, Sharp? And they bring him down, and he doesn't wreck things completely. But it it was a moment of, I suppose, gleeful despair. And he spends the rest of the uh, the mission gaffer taped to a chair. Yeah. And then AJ brings back the hope because uh, their first drill breaks and then they get to drill again. And, and there's very much a feeling of, yeah, we're back on track. And it's like they deliver that those endorphins were, and, and the dopamine of, yes, like we're now into the point where after all of this misery, we're actually starting to fight our way out of it. Mm-hmm. And then they almost get to the uh, end of this and then, oh, shit, the bomb's all screwed up. And the only way we can get it done is by pressing this thingy and that's going to take someone to stay. And this got to you. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to explain. I say why, that that but... wasn't being said incredulously. No, 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 no but... I know, yeah. I know. But it 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 does that whole sort of. I suppose it's got something to do with the uh, the idea that first Harry's like, "I'll do it," and then everybody's like, "No, we all want a shot at volunteering at this." Mm. And you know, they do the whole drawing straws thing, and AJ gets the short straw, and then. You get the whole bit where Harry takes him down to the surface and then punches him in the back of the head, mm. so he's going to take over the mission from him. And it it just it the, does give AJ a slight chance to to go. Okay, I got the short straw. That's fine. I'll do this. Mm. And he doesn't go. Oh God! Can we do a recount? Yeah, exactly. But I, I think I suppose it's the it's the element that this is really about these are the last few guys on the raggedy edge at yeah. this point, um, and the fact that they are all in that final moment, dedicated to this cause. It's just that Harry has something a little bit extra, which is that he wants to make sure AJ gets back to take care of his daughter. Mm. Sacrifice grabs me. Yeah, no, I get it. When like everyone's gone and they've left Harry behind and he's just, he's just, just got to press this button and then more things go wrong and then it delays him in the pressing of the button and the deadline's come up, he's got to press it to the second... Mm. This didn't get me so much because it's then taking that emotion and eking it yeah. out over the last... That bit felt annoying. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like there was a point... that This played at Cannes and it got laughter. Mm. And I, I there was a bit where the sound actually sounded fucked up. Like the, it was playing Trevor Rabin's score, but it seemed to be like stretching it and it sounded out of tune. I noticed it. Lyra noticed it. She's been doing a lot of music composition recently. So if she's noticing it, yeah. it's not just me mm-hmm. going nuts. I, in part, it's because it's pan pipes. 
No, it was the and like if you stretch a note like that and then it warps, mm. you really hear it if there's no no one else talking. Yeah. And I don't know whether that was the point when people started laughing and Bruce Willis stood up and shouted at the audience, "I'm glad you find the end of the world so funny." But um, it could just have been when it was dragging out the Harry's got to press the button, but he can't press the button. But like he's struggling to get to it. And it's like closing in. And then he gets it and then he sort of lifts it up. And it's like, just press the fucking button, dude. That, that, this is down to their calculations. They could have miscalculated by a nanosecond. Every fucking second counts. Please press it now. And he says... We win, Gracie. And it's like, don't say we win. Like, there is no time for a pithy final word. Just fucking press it. And then his life or his daughter flashes before his eyes, which is sweet. And it just, it reminded me that this is the big version that everyone saw of Sunshine. Mm-hmm. It's Sunshine is the same film made with smart, smart people in mind. Now, it doesn't mean if you like Armageddon, you're stupid. I like Armageddon, but I love Sunshine. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, they, they ha- when they have their arguments in Sunshine, it's like, right, we're all smart and we all know this isn't going to work mm-hmm. and we all know the risks of this. So they have very much quieter, more considered discussions yeah. as opposed to just sort of butting heads and going, come get Papa Bear! And also, one of the... Sort of fundamental points of the crew in Sunshine, and again, Sacrifice gets to me. Probably one of the reasons it's my favourite film. Chris Evans um, helps. Not what I was going to say. Killian yes, Murphy Chris helps. Chris Evans and Killian Murphy. Michelle Yeoh Michelle helps. Michelle Yeoh and Rose Byrne and, and you know, Canada. Benedict Wong. Continue. Anyway, where was I? You were saying that while well, oh, sacrifice yes, gets sacri- you. Yeah. So the the whole point of the crew on Sunshine is that they have all made their decision about making their sacrifice. They made it before they got on the damn ship. Except Harvey. Except Harvey, but that's Harvey's a the plot piece of shit point. from this film who should not have been in the on the Icarus 2. But what you don't get is a moment at the end. And I've just realized I can't actually say this because it's a spoiler. For Sunshine? Mm. Okay. Say it and we'll see if we can reword okay. it. You don't get a moment at the end where Killian Murphy stands there and goes, How am I going to set this bomb off? How am I going to do this? Well, no, like, he's desperate to set the bomb off and so yeah. is Harry, but he doesn't exactly. stop to give a pithy comment. No, he doesn't. Because <laughs> there'd be nobody to hear it at that point yeah. apart from the sun. Yeah, his pithy the comment. The sun doesn't care. His pithy comment is. <laughs> it's the same pithy comment as Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, watch Sunshine Kids, mm. it's Brill. <laughs> oh, it- Don't actually watch Sunshine, folks. Actual Sunshine. Actual Sunshine is brilliant. Mm. And will hurt your eyes. There may actually be something in that. Armageddon clearly being made with a right wing bent. Sunshine is lefty and intellectual, with the focus being on the needs of the many. With Deep Impact coming in the middle as very wishy-washy centrism. Look at the heroes. Oil-drilling American dudes in Armageddon. Scientists of various genders from all around the globe in Sunshine. And in Deep Impact, white middle-class American civilians. We've got to do Sunshine.
then they go back to uh, Earth, and there is that the, the bookend to the, uh, the the rousing speech, and everyone's very very happy. And I'm like, at this point, kind of like an Independence Day, even though it wasn't everyone coming together, surely we can kind of resolve our differences now. And I was like looking at it and going like, can we maybe just like see about world peace and stop attacking each other? And then I realized, oh shit, it's 2020. We'd have to get all the capitalists to agree that they don't want all the money. Otherwise, no, no peace. Oh my God. That's what those fuckers in Independence Day are. Can there be a peace between us? They are our own endless greed reflected back at us. A thirst that cannot be slaked. And there you go. Sometimes it works in the exact opposite direction of Godzilla 1998 to Godzilla 2 King of the Monsters. Independence Day 1996 to the modern day equivalent Independence Day Resurgence. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every single episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely. Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter. And next week, since everybody's going to be feeling particularly tense, we have a very special episode planned for you. I'm not going to spoil it here, but if listening to this has made you want to watch the movie Sunshine, go with the feeling. But Sunshine is only part of it. Find out more in seven days' time. We've got your back, folks. And also it made me think while I was watching the the marriage at the end. You know, it's been 22 years. High time for Son of Armageddon. Where another even bigger... It's the size of two Texases, sir. Mm. Uh, even bigger meteorite comes to destroy the Earth. And Ben Affleck is now really, really pissed because his son is seeing his daughter. I don't know. It's confusing. But yeah, a sequel, a remake, a Lego sequel and make sure Michael Bay does it again. Again, this would probably make a billion dollars nowadays. I don't think it would be better. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that good to begin with, but it's better than Deep Impact. 
So yeah, that's Armageddon. Um, I don't know whether we should leave you with Trevor Rabin's score or I don't want to miss a thing. I feel like both. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
would spend my life in this sweet surrender. I could stay lost in this moment.